Good afternoon, everyone, and kia ora. Welcome to our first of two webinars on machine learning and artificial intelligence in pavement asset management. In today's session, we'll describe the tips, tricks, and success strategies found to avoid the common pitfalls and ensure artificial intelligence and machine learning projects proceed to delivery and successful integration within existing business processes. We have more than 400 people registered for today's session. Thank you for joining us and welcome. My name is Anthony Lucchini. I'm a communications officer here at Austroids. I will be moderating today's session with Dr. David Rawlinson, who is one of the authors of this project. David will be moderating the Q&A section at the end of today's webinar. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Austroids is based in Sydney, and so today I am on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to their deep and ongoing connection to the land. A bit about Austroids. We are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. A little bit of housekeeping before we start. Our presenters will speak for 40 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A session for 15 minutes at the end. The slides, report, and quick reference document can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, include, it, include the number of that slide in your message. You'll find that on the bottom right-hand corner of the slide. This helps give context to your question and helps us answer it as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually helps. This session is being broadcast, being recorded, and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Austroids in your podcast app. The project we are covering today was delivered under Austroids Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy. I'm very excited now to introduce two of our guests for today. Dr. David Rawlinson is a lead data scientist at WSP. He has completed a PhD from Monash University on mobile robot navigation using computer vision and has worked in academia at Melbourne University and National ICT Australia on a variety of biomedical imaging and genomic machine learning projects. Tim Cross is WSP New Zealand's Technical Principal and Advisory Manager for Business Intelligence and Data Solution Delivery with specialisation in infrastructure asset management. Tim is also co-lead to the Transport Data Knowledge Hub for the Ministry of Transport New Zealand and lead digital advisor to several of New Zealand's national and local asset systems. He is a member of Engineering New Zealand and he is an ISACA Platinum member. A warm welcome to both of our presenters and over to you, Tim. Cool. Thank you, Anthony. Um, uh, just, I guess, to, to start, uh, I'm going to share with you uh, some motiv our, our uh, motivation and context uh, for delivery of, of our machine learning and artificial intelligence project. Uh, just acknowledging our program manager, Ross Guppy, um, our Austroads project manager, Chin Dong Lee, and, uh, and our WSP project team. 
Also, our, uh, our, our project working group, which incorporated uh, specialists across each of the road agencies and the consulting community across New Zealand and Australia. Uh, specialisations in asset management and in uh, the machine learning, AI and digital uh, areas. Uh, we're very grateful for their inputs. Uh, in terms of our WSP project team, uh, a, a, a wide range of capability, likewise in the specialisations of, of infrastructure asset management uh, and digital, and uh, across Australia and New Zealand, uh, with uh, Dave and me representing our wider team for this presentation. Uh, we'd also like to acknowledge the, the technical reviewers, David Payne, and Sarush Rashidi for their valued input into our, into our report and uh, development. Our project obje objectives, uh, uh, two, uh, exploring use of, of AI and ML, which you'll see tagged quite a lot in our presentation, artificial intelligence and machine learning, specifically for pavement asset management uh, via two case studies. And then uh, uh, effectively using those case studies as a way to, to demonstrate, develop and illustrate an effective methodology for delivery of similar AI and ML projects. And uh, our presentation today is going to focus quite heavily around that methodology. Let's take a, just in terms of an overview of our sector and use of data. Um, data uh, as going way back to the very early times of, of uh, engineering and science, uh, the, we, we have really been uh, the, the originators of key data um, and uh, recognising that when we've, uh, uh, we've entered into, into the world, wanting to seek to measure and monitor and understand our world and the environment, um, the, the uh, Effectively, the data, the basic data that we first collected uh, was data that helped us to form theorems and theories that are actually are now the basis of so much more that we have developed and used as a foundation for much more sophisticated uh, life as we know it now. Uh, and uh, I guess where we find ourselves now is really in that advanced space. We want to measure and monitor more. This means more, uh, more sensors, that can help us to collect more data, that can help us to, to drive towards evidence-based decisions. Um, and uh, as I think many of you will be aware, there's been significant investment across the road sector in recent years in, in devices to help us with that, with that mass data collection. Uh, and those include the real-time network sensors, cameras, and geospatial. And this is leading to, a, to an emerging area within our sector um, specific to digital, specific to data engineering and data science disciplines. Uh, with regard to, to AI and ML and asset management, um, the application of, of AI and ML, I guess probably most likely just in terms of the diagram to the right, we're most familiar with application through sensing and perception. Um, however, the data that we collect is increasing in volume more and more when it comes to other areas uh, specific to, to asset management, uh, particularly uh, around condition inference and event forecasting and around how we plan future projects. 
Um, the, the diagram to the left, you'll be familiar, I think many of you will be familiar with, is a deterioration curve uh, as, we, as, we, uh, as, as assets are invested in and over time through, through, uh, through environmental uh, decay and through also uh, through use of assets, we see decline, there's the need to invest, and as a consequence, we end up with, with, these, uh, with these, these curves. It's a case of us being able to model that behavior um, through AI and ML. Um, but when it comes to actually application of machine learning and artificial intelligence, we hit a few challenges. The stats are not favorable for us, uh, particularly if we try these things in isolation uh, without, uh, without necessarily um, being clear on a, on a firm methodology. So uh, here, 87% of data science projects never make it to production. Only 20% of analytics insights projects will deliver business outcomes. And 85% of ML, AI ML projects will deliver erroneous outcomes. These are not good. So actually getting things in order, um, having ourselves a plan and way forward and ease and and an ease of delivery of these projects. Um, we want to improve on these stats absolutely as a sector. So that's one of our key motivations for development for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the project itself. Um, and at the same time, the development of a quick guide to help with, with success strategies for, for you and the way that you uh, form and develop and deliver uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning projects. Um, we recognize that uh, adoption of, in this technology is still difficult and risky, so this is, a, this is a guide to help you on that journey. And that material is available for you now. If you're on our, our live call now, it's available for download in the handout section uh, in GoToMeeting. Or if you're watching our recording, uh, all available of these are available for download directly from the Austroads uh, website, uh, specific to our project, and the link is available there for you. Okay, um, I'm going to now hand over to my colleague Dave, who's going to give you um, this. Who's going to share success strategies? Over to you, Dave. Thanks very much, Tim, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. So in this part of the presentation, we're going to sort of drill down a bit more into uh, some of the content of that quick reference deck. And um, as Tim mentioned, you're welcome to sort of follow along as we go or just sort of sit back and sort of enjoy and sort of have a look at that later. And, um, you know, perhaps that, that will spur some questions that we're happy to take at the end. So the first part of our uh, quick reference deck is um, really, uh, it's called the Project Development Tool, and it's really about how to scope and design and develop a project. It's based on the idea of a business model canvas, which has become popular in the startup community, you know, business startups. Uh, in order to sort of help people think about all of the potential pitfalls and, um, and opportunities and threats and, you know, all the other aspects of, of the company or business that you need to sort of really grapple with before they come and bite you. And that's essentially the inspiration for the project development tool that we've, we've provided. The aim is to reduce the project risk, you know, improve some of those numbers that Tim talked about by 
uh, having a better project design from the outset. And as we go through the presentation today, you'll sort of see why that's so important. So uh, a lot of the questions that we put in that project development tool are really sort of trying to sort of find answers to these common obstacles that we have seen personally in, in previous projects and, and also that we've, we've sort of read about in literature and, um, you know, all sorts of sources of, of information about, you know, why projects fail and why projects succeed and, you know, what qualities sort of, you know, impact the risk. So if we were asked to boil it down, um, our sort of top four points that, that we think, you know, um, the sort of greatest barriers to success are these four here. So firstly, uh, the project lacks a quantifiable value proposition. So it's not just like, you know, can you do something, but if you were to do it, you know, what would be the value to the business? How well do you have to do it? How accurate do you have to be to generate a certain dollar value that makes it worth doing at all? And uh, secondly, focusing on demonstrating a capability rather than a solution is often a, a trap that we see people fall into. So a capability would, for example, be, you know, oh, I can predict traffic demand on part of the road network, but a solution would be, I can use predictions of traffic demand in order to effectively to manage traffic and you know, lead to sort of better throughput. So the solution is much more than just the capability. And especially when you're dealing with you know, sort of research and development exercises, it's too easy to become fixated just on the capability. Thirdly, uh, underestimating change man management. And and in fact, this kind of evolves out of the sort of not having enough thought going into the value proposition and the solution development, because when you do think about those things, you realise just how much change needs to happen to existing business processes in order to successfully adopt AIML solutions. And then because of all of that change, because of the impact on stakeholders, the evolution of projects as they go, you know, just having, sustaining that momentum via accountability and ownership throughout the project is crucially important as well. And what's interesting is that all of these points are about project design and management. They're not AI and machine learning technical issues. So just to sort of try and give a bit more sort of concreteness to this idea of solution versus capability, I just throw in an example and you'll see there are examples from my experience sort of throughout this presentation. Um, so in this case, um, the, the problem was, you know, can we reduce occupation of a railway network by maintenance vehicles? And, um, and in fact, the answer was, yes, we can. Like technically the AI capability is there and very, very viable and achievable. But, you know, further exploration of the project made it clear that you can't realise the benefit of that without continual integration of the operational and the maintenance systems. Because, you know, your optimised schedule is only as good uh, as, as people are actually able to execute it. And reactive maintenance would often take the maintenance vehicles away to other sections of the track that didn't wasn't compatible with the plan and then essentially you need to you need to redo the plan and then you also need to redo the plan based on your know, measured track condition and so all of these systems really need to be sort of tied together and feeding data into each other seamlessly to have a solution even though demonstrating the capability of optimizing uh, track occupation for planned works is relatively easy and similarly talking about operational impacts um, in this project we uh, we looked at developing a model of uh, leak risk for individual water main pipes. And, you know, that in itself, again, is like the technical part relatively easy. But when you think about how you translate that into an, an operational solution, uh, it had quite severe uh, impacts on the, the field crews who didn't currently have a, 
Uh, at the time, they didn't have a digital means of, of being instructed where to look precisely. They didn't have an ability to precisely descri describe where they had surveyed and, and um, you know, any defects they'd found. So, so what was realised is that, well, actually, we need to change the equipment that the crews are using in the field as part of the solution. And so you can see that those impacts are quite significant. So coming back to the project development tool, uh, you can see how in order to manage all of those all of those impacts, the change, the the, the stakeholders who are affected, um, you really need that that critical buy-in from the business in order to to make the project successful all the way through. And so that's why that joins our list as a, a key feature. So the second part of the uh, of the quick reference guide talks about project management and project delivery, and you'll see that. The strategy that we advocate is an agile one, which is relatively common in software, but less so in um, conventional asset management and a lot of other engineering disciplines. Now, one of the things that uh, often people find a bit confusing about agile is, is this idea, well, you, you've got this very rapid cycle of, you know, plan, do something, you know, test it, evaluate it, and get some feedback, and then repeat again and again. And people say, well, how can you do that? when you've got you know, a, project, a process that inherently takes weeks or months to execute. And so in, in the guide, we sort of try to explain how you know, Agile is compatible with that type of longer process where there's much more to unpack. We also try to deal with a lot of the, the terminology and sort of demystify that. And, and really the terminology is not something to get too sort of um, uh, too concerned about because you know, there's a few different flavors of, of Agile processes, but the one sort of key overriding feature of all of them is the importance of review and regular detailed feedback from people you know, at the coalface, the stakeholders and users. That is really the one thing that I would take away and say that's the most important thing about about the Agile project management methodology. And Agile is, is sort of becoming more popular in, in other domains, but the software industry sort of almost, you know, wholesale moved from, you know, a waterfall uh, project management module model to Agile. Uh, so around about the year 2000, maybe a little bit after that. And um, the reason that happened was there was, you know, software projects are often extremely complex. and uh, there was a sort of emerging perception that all software projects come in very late, um, they deliver poor outcomes, they you know, uh, cost a lot more uh, than they were supposed to. And, and sort of on inspection of the causes of that, it really all came down to this essential fallacy that at the start of the project, somebody really clever could sit down and foresee all of the things that might go wrong, all of the problems that they didn't know about, and work those into the plan. And so on accepting that that just isn't realistic, um, then the, the industry decided to ask, well, okay, if that's not possible and we accept that, then what do we do instead? And that led to that agile strategy. And and the thing is that, that it's the uncertainty that really makes agile valuable. And Obviously, if you're developing a new AI or machine learning use case, you know, you're sort of testing, you're entering new waters, you know, covering new ground, then that's inherently uncertain and that's why we advocate an agile approach. And just to illustrate that, I just want to talk about an example with a, a bank customer um, where 
they originally had the idea of a fraud prevention project and so that would obviously be owned by the fraud department and they wanted to know which customers would defraud the bank uh, before they finished sign up and were given credit and the ability to defraud the bank but you know digging more into that the sort of realistic levels of performance that you could achieve plus the sort of legal constraints on withdrawing credit and practical constraints on you know can you sort of you know take cards back and you know stop the fraud happening in other ways meant that it wasn't really possible to sort of realize the vision that they had in mind and so what eventually happened is that the project evolved into uh, optimizing the lifetime customer value so rather than give them all the credit at the start credit was something that was given to customers as a reward for you know being good customers and so uh, the sort of that whole thing moved into a sort of product team owned project and so you can see that that not only did the product change but it also even moved from one department to another and, and that's how much uncertainty can be in an AIML project. Okay and um, so that's the first part and now Tim I'm going to hand over to Tim and he's going to talk a bit about uh, cheat sheets which is the second part of that quick reference deck. Cool thank you Dave. Um, so, so if you're not familiar with the term cheat sheet uh, think of think of a, an A4 piece of paper and effectively compressing of all key information that you need on a particular subject um, forced within that one page. Um, uh, what we've done uh, as, as part of the delivery of, of our quick guide is the development of five cheat sheets to help in these specific staged, staged um, uh, areas particular to delivery of projects. So uh, what we're going to do now is cover each of those five and we'll start with requirements analysis. So requirements analysis and, and understanding exactly what we want to achieve is definitely the most crucial step in delivery of an effective project. Uh, if we're not clear on the problem statement, we're not clear on the value proposition, then our chances of success are particularly low and may be significantly challenged um, uh, if we don't have the right people working with us and we don't have uh, the right ownership attached to this, then there can be massive challenges in the way that we go about delivering such projects. Um, of particular, particular challenges if we end up uh, wanting to chase particular trends or we focus only on on a technical, on a technical um, capability, as Dave was mentioning before, and not on a solution that's effective for everyone. So in order to be able to achieve effective projects, uh, we want to be able to, we, we need to develop uh, effective, an effective project team uh, that is fit for purpose and scale for what we want to achieve. So this element of our cheat sheet uh, gives, you, uh, gives you the ability to be able to look um, particularly uh, around uh, particular roles, recognizing the need for project sponsors, champions, subject matter experts, and uh, with the ability to be able to, to capture the business needs directly as required and, uh, and ensure that we're able to, to validate the approaches that are, that are required from a business perspective and from a technical perspective. Uh, in more detail, particular to this cheat sheet, we get into the exact 
technical roles that are of benefit to delivery of AI and ML projects, um, such that you would be able to look through this material, determine who will be who will be the particular roles of people that you need to have involved based on what you're trying to achieve out of the project. Um, it is a case. Uh, certainly recommend that you that you review this particular um, this particular part of our cheat sheet um, to to um, to really assess exactly what kind of scale of of team and skills you need. Consider this uh, particularly with regard to um, particular maybe future recruitment or engagement with with other parties to help you in delivery of projects. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm now going to pass to Dave to share about our second cheat sheet. Thanks again, Tim. Um, so the second part of our five-point methodology that, that we developed in the course of the project is um, data collation, pre-processing and exploratory analysis. And, um, and so one of the points that we like to sort of emphasise here is that it often takes a lot longer than you think. It can often be the part of the project that involves the greatest labour expenditure. And the reason for that is that it involves you know, going out there and finding, you know, identifying um, the, the best data, the most truthful and definitive data set among often many sort of competing versions, obtaining that data, figuring out how you're going to sort of um, have up-to-date you know, versions of that data supplied to the system. Um, we need to explore the characteristics. Sometimes you've got potential competing data sets that have different qualities and you sort of need to understand which one is better. And then we perform a, a transformation of the data set to link and integrate it into one you know, coherent one that can be presented to an AI or a machine learning algorithm. And that linking and integrating often has never happened before. Often these systems have been, success, you know, they've been happily living in silos separate and uh, and it's always been considered, you know, would be good, but it's very difficult to sort of integrate them together. And so often the this part of a machine learning project is often the first delivery of significant business value. And um, and and I and I've seen it again and again that that having sort of created this data set that is more truthful and more up to date and you know more complete than any other, people start to sort of come out of the woodwork and they start phoning up and asking questions. Say, hey, I heard you've got this new data set and it, it's, it's got all the problems fixed and obviously not all the problems are fixed, but um, you know, that shows the value of, of that process. Because what you're really doing there is digitization, uh, you know, which is, you know, is well known for its own benefits, um, you know, improving you know, business speed and efficiency and reducing risk. And um, the, risk, the reason for those risks is that prior to digitization, you often have what I kind of think about as this sort of iceberg of, of sort of undocumented, sort of poorly understood processes uh, with no sort of guarantees on timeliness or correctness of any of the steps. So in, in the example here, you've got somebody, you know, in the visible part of the iceberg, that's the person who sort of owns that data set. But you know, under the sea, you've got all these people who are contributing parts towards that. And you know, one of them may go on holiday at any moment in time and that sort of creates that that risk and digitization uh, often rightly is a project in its own in its own right uh, but it's also a project that can be quite difficult and um, and so one of the sort of success strategies that we've seen uh, work quite effectively in the past is is sort of using an AIML 
project as like a use case to sort of succeed with digitization rather than sort of tackle everything at once and say right we're going to digitize everything we've got you can take this use case and say well we need to we need to manage um, run times for our railway network and then you digitize the systems that you need in order to do that and then you get that benefit even if the AIML system doesn't do anything at all. You've already succeeded with that digitization. And it seems to be easier for organizations to deal with, with digitization for a specific end goal than an, some more open-ended and global digitization. And uh, just to sort of illustrate the, the sort of value of that integrated data, I just want to highlight a project that um, my team worked on uh, for the New South Wales government called Land IQ, and that was designed to be a planning platform that brought together all of these different spatial data sets with a bunch of analytical tools. Um, but just the fact that that data was integrated and presented in like a very good user interface meant that they were able to realise all these new use cases. So, for example, in the response to the, the floods in northern New South Wales last year, they found that the platform was actually very helpful there too. And so that's to sort of illustrate, you know, the potential value of uh, integrating data. So the third part of our um, of our proposed methodology we call solution development, and you know this is the bit that often people think is the the biggest, but in reality often it may not be. It may be quite a, a, a quick part, especially if you're reusing existing methods. But a couple of things we'd really like to call out as being important here is just firstly the importance of problem representation because that's going to that's going to determine how other other users and other systems are going to interact with the solution that you're developing. Um, and then secondly, also call out the value of automated um, systematic pipelines that allow you to reproduce any results that you've had. So there's nothing more frustrating when you know, you, you've sort of the project has evolved a bit and none of your earlier results can be reproduced or compared to the later ones. So yeah, definitely worthwhile. Now, I sort of talked about the importance of problem representation. So what's a good problem representation? One of the sort of paradigms that, that we've seen work very successfully we call decision support. And decision support means that rather than try to entirely automate or uh, replace uh, humans in the loop, you try to make them more effective, more efficient and sort of more stimulated in their job so they can do their job better. And to try and sort of illustrate how that works, I sort of pulled up this example, which is from a project I did with um, Royal Melbourne Hospital. And um, in this case, uh, we're trying to support uh, radiologists who are looking at scans of brains um, with multiple cirrhosis to, to track the progression of, of lesions. And so we didn't, we didn't sort of create software that took that and then handed the radiologist a list of, of changes. Instead, we, we created software that made it easier for the radiologist to scan through by aligning the two sets of scans. And then we also highlighted and produced a sort of short list of saying, well, you know, not saying what it is, but you should probably have a look at this. And, um, and we were able to find um, empirically that that did produce a higher rate of lesion discovery and, um, and also more efficient overall working. So decision support, highly recommended as an approach. And sort of part of decision support is often about building like good user interfaces, which is worthwhile in itself because um, you may have heard this, this, this term called responsible ethical AI. And a big part of that is explainability and interpretability, which means, you know, can the model tell you why it made a decision? 
you know, what factors or what variables went into, into that outcome? Like how did the decision get made? And the more complex models, I mean, black box models, are increasingly harder to understand the sort of motivation behind that. There are tools that help you to uh, visualise and unpick how decisions were made and you can use those, but also like user interfaces that sort of present collectively decisions in sort of terms that mean things to people such as spatially that also really helps as well so the example here is um, a map of part of Melbourne and we were, at the time we were developing um, a system for uh, detecting anomalous traffic levels on, on roads across the state and just just sort of skimming through and checking how it was working we saw this and we we're like, oh, that's very odd. Um, and if we had seen those results as just a list of road names, then we probably wouldn't have been able to figure out what was going wrong. And we probably would have spent a lot of time trying to, to figure out what the issue was. But because the interface showed us that all of the anomalous traffic seemed to be connected to the beach, we headed over to the newspaper and sure enough, the newspaper said that everyone went to the beach because it was a really hot night and the models were actually working as intended. So, so the, the, the value of the interface is really to sort of help you explain and interpret model decisions. Um, interfaces also help because uh, you're not just trying to replace people with machines, you're trying to sort of improve the performance of humans. And, um, and this, this tweet here, um, I saved it because it, it was so fascinating. Uh, basically, there's a, there's a game called Go, which is you know, you know, main thing that people talk about is the fact that it's harder than chess, and so people thought it would be a long time before machines uh, beat humans. But but you know, in 2017, a sort of superhuman uh, level of Go playing was achieved, and all of the best human Go players started to play against superhuman machines. And actually, what happened is that after a long period of stagnation, the quality of human moves in Go started to increase. So that exposure to the behaviour of the superhuman machines actually boosted uh, human performance. All right. So the fourth part of our methodology is all about model validation and assessment. And again, this is a part of the methodology that I think often can be sort of you know, uh, underestimated in terms of how much effort and time and, and thought needs to go into it. Now, there's a lot of aspects to it. I'm not going to go into sort of all the technical ones today, but I'm just going to try and sort of drill home sort of most important points. Uh, one of the things to really sort of emphasise is that you're going to make critical business decisions based on the outcomes of your AI ML project, your proof of concept, the, the evidence that you've got as to whether this thing works. And um, the correctness of the validation methodology is crucial to that. It's all too easy with numerical systems to get results that are completely at odds with reality just due to tiny errors. And um, yeah, that's just not my, not just my concern. You can see from this articles in Nature and Science, like yeah, this is a pressing concern for a lot, a lot of um, experts in the field. And um, and so th there's also implicit errors. So yeah. Software engineers often hate it when a piece of software crashes and you know everything stops working, but at least it stops working. With machine learning or AI, you often have implicit errors where everything looks like it's working correctly, but actually it's giving you garbage. And uh, there's a number of reasons for that, including data leakage, which I'll sort of talk about in a minute. And the other point I'd make is that it's not enough to just uh, handle those issues when they occur because they can be so subtle you actually have to go out there and create software that, that tests and works and adversarially challenges your 
uh, your approach and your methodology to prove that those that, that sort of confounding and bias doesn't exist because if you don't do that then I'm sure it will. And then finally uh, we also strongly recommend that you measure performance under operational conditions or as close as you can get to it because often that jump from a sort of toy or sort of theoretical data set to the real world is, is the one that, that can kill a project. So just to sort of give a bit more uh, detail on, on what some of those concepts are. So bias here, um, if we took that training set on the left and we, the challenge here is to sort of classify an animal as a cat or a dog. So we take that training set and trained a machine learning model and then gave it the image on the right, which is like a test set. Then I'm pretty sure that the machine learning would tell you that that, that cat is a dog. And not only would it tell you it's a dog, it would tell you that it's 99% confident in the answer. And the reason for that is the bias in the training set where all of the, I've probably, probably spotted it by now, all of, the, all of the cats that are in the training set have white fur. And of course, now we tested on one that doesn't. So that, that's bias. Now, that bias is relatively obvious if you look at the whole data set, but in other cases, it may not be so obvious. Data leakage is a sort of fairly broad concept, um, but crucially important. Um, one way to think about it is kind of like giving all of the students the answers in lecture one. And by giving them the answers, essentially there are statistical relationships between the training data and the test data, which means that when you measure that test data, you're getting a false picture of its actual performance. And so in a pavement modeling context, um, that might be that you know, the, the different sections of the road network are not statistically independent. So maybe they had the same treatments applied at the same time. And then if you take some of that road and you put some of it into the training set and some of it into the test set, then they share that, that link. And so the, the model can sort of use that as a clue to figure out you know, what the answer is for the, the sections in the test set. Um, the problem is that, that these sort of uh, shared properties, these shared statistical properties exist for many parts of, uh, of a, a data set. And so it can be very difficult and sort of involve some trade-offs in order to find a test set that doesn't horribly reduce your training set. And again, like some of the other issues, can completely invalidate your result. I think the, the sort of final point I want to make on, on validation is that this isn't a sort of rare exceptional event. Like these types of errors occur all too often, uh, not just in industry, but also in academia. And this, uh, this screenshot here is from a paper that surveyed 20 other papers in total looking at 329 papers and, and the frequency of methodological errors. I mean, basically, it is rampant. And so given that, the chances of it happening to your project are also very high. And so the more sort of aware of that you can be, the better. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Tim, who's going to talk about the final part of our methodology. Thanks, Dave. So yeah, our, our final cheat sheet uh, and final focus in, in our methodology is around outcomes and adoption. And really a case of when we're, when we're thinking about outcomes for our projects, we need to be thinking about this, not just uh, not just as, as the point at the end of a project, but as part during the project. We need to understand, as, as, uh, as we've talked about before, the value proposition. We need to ensure that we're delivering on the value and we also need to be thinking about not just focusing on delivering a capability, but a solution. So um, in, this, in this case, um, working through the specific outcomes and, and adoption points needed, um, this is here for you to help in that process. 
So yeah, really a case of, of continuing uh, continually evaluating the value, uh, recognizing the value, and, uh, and integrating AI and ML project outputs into workflows, and really that this be a, a space where we are in a continuous learning, that we are uh, in the actions and the development and delivery of solutions, always building upon a foundation that we can trust and continuing in that. And just in summary, uh, our success strategies, a, a melding of both business and technical strategies to help you, um, uh, really focusing, ensuring that we're, we're acting in an agile way, um, ensuring we're clear on value proposition, creating solution, not capability, never underestimating that change can impact. And uh, as, as Dave has shared around digitization, the use of AI and ML to succeed there, recognizing and leveraging early wins, uh, applying uh, AI and, and ML uh, in decision support, and always being aware that we need to think ethically around application of these technologies. That concludes our presentation. And uh, we thank you for, for attending and listening. Uh, we're now going to move to the, the question and answer session uh, that Dave will be facilitating. Thanks, Tim. So um, as Tim mentioned, if you have any questions for us, um, if you want to sort of us to talk in any more detail about any of the things that you heard today um, or the sort of experiences that we've had, feel free to put them down in the um, question uh, part there. And um, and then we'll we'll pick some and go through. So so ask away. Um, I see there's a question that's just come in there about agile. I'll try and open that. Uh, really appreciate so the question says, I really appreciate talking through agile. I've been trying to incorporate these practices into my own work, uh, but it's fairly unheard of in my business area. How do you go about introducing agile to a team who hasn't isn't familiar with it? Okay, so that is a tricky one. Now, there's a lot of, there's a, essentially a whole industry out there that sort of helped, helped initially the software industry, but now sort of helps sort of companies more generally move towards an agile methodology. Um, it, it's something that sort of takes practice. You're going to be sort of, uh, sort of pushing people a little bit out of their, their comfort zone and sort of experimenting a bit. So I'd probably say it's a good thing to maybe get some sort of outside help. There's a, there's a number of really good books. Um, I'm not sure I want to recommend one right now, but there's a number of really good books about different agile strategies and always sort of worth reading. Uh, some good web articles. Uh, Tim, do you have any thoughts about, about good ways to engage with agile practice? I think uh, certainly one thing that's, that's significant in Agile now is, is the cloud technologies and application of Agile directly. Um, the support that's provided through those environments definitely gives, gives, uh, sets, sets, an sets a space to actually define a, a core methodology in Agile. Uh, and, it's, and I know for myself, there's nothing better than actually uh, putting, this, putting your knowledge into practice. Um, so, so the I guess the software is leaning in an air in a way to help to support in a way to sort of cement your knowledge as you gain it. Thanks, Tim. 
Um, we've got another question about um, challenges in acquiring rainfall data, and particularly around data quality, um, the detail and features, and probably the aspects like spatial and temporal resolution would be important as well. Um, so there's a lot that I could say about that. I mean, we're kind of fortunate in Australia is in the, the Bureau of Meteorology does have a large number of sort of high quality data sets there. But, um, but just in general, I think what I would say is when you're struggling with data quality, try to sort of uh, take a few steps back and look at the big picture of the, of the problem and you know, really sort of ask what data quality you actually need. What can you do with the data that, that you have? And so maybe your predictions can't be as accurate, but still can be useful. And so often this is a reality that we, we do have to deal with and we sort of seek to redefine the problem to be feasible with the data that's available. So, you know, while one part of it is, you know, um, trying to get the best data out there, another part of it is, is um, you know, managing and doing what you can with the data that is available. And, and maybe that changes the nature of the project. Maybe that changes, you know, how you would use the outputs of your model. Um, and then additionally, sort of all of the aspects around validation, a lot of the model validation techniques can also be applied to the analysis of the data that you have so you can sort of understand its com completeness and, and other properties. Mm -hmm. Certainly helps. data quality helps to advance us further in the, in the analytics journey as well. Um, and even in a, in a base case of being able to, <coughs> to analyze your data um, just to just to just to understand what's happened or understand what the data is telling us on a very basic level can certainly help in that journey around improvements in data quality. Definitely. Um, we've got a question. Uh, do we have any advice in regarding managing external expectations? For example, upper management thinking you're magic. So I can totally imagine how the perception that you're doing some sort of magic is uh, is, is dangerous, right? Because it's, it's, it can even be dangerous when you're going well and dangerous when things are not going well. And I think probably my suggestion would be, we'll come back to the sort of points we made at the start around sort of business ownership and stakeholders and buy-in. If you can keep, if you can keep the, those, um, the sort of senior management in the loop so they see not just the, the end result, but they're sort of exposed to the sort of ups and downs as the project evolves. And I think it's much easier for them to understand, you know, why you got to the place you got to and, you know, the opportunities that exist from there. So, you know, applying that sort of success strategy around making sure you've got that buy-in and momentum and support, I think would really help with that. Tim, do you want to add anything on that one? Um, yeah, certainly, you know, the, the quality of what we can deliver relies on that business ownership. We've got to recognise that that those that that are our owners of projects are the investors, and it's important for us to be to be uh, aware of what those direct business needs are, and focus focus our work directly to that. Um, it's very tempting to focus around technical solutions, um, independent of of business direction. But the more that we're we're working together from a business and technical perspective. The better that we're able to to form form a robust foundation of knowledge, uh, and and build and grow on that together. Definitely. So we have a question that says: Is the scale of a project one of the key factors for implementation? You know, budget and data constraints on a small project may limit the feasibility for adoption. So 
I think for me in response to this, I, I think I would say, well, yeah, develop a roadmap for where you eventually want to go and understand how some intermediate steps can contribute to that roadmap, but don't try and solve it all in one go. Try and try and deliver something valuable early on. And this is this is you know, an agile approach, right? Agile says you know, quickly deliver something valuable and then improve it. And the way that that evolves may be different than how you think it would be at the start, but but that may mean that you can have sort of a small amount of expenditure over a period of time and still deliver something good. And you know, if you, people can see the vision of where you're trying to go, then you know, hopefully they'll still keep funding that. Tim, do you want to add anything to that answer? Uh, I think the the um, the value of technical reviews, the value of independent assessment of of your projects. Is it's just is so invaluable in the in being able to understand the you know if you're on the right track how we can you know whether whether we need to be um, rethinking particular elements of scope or whether we need to be um, confining particular uh, direction in what we're doing um, it's a case case of of um, certainly you know keeping keeping an, a more open and transparent approach to what we're doing. Um, uh, certainly keeping communication lines open and uh, and doing our best to communicate uh, I think as well just if there is a language gap between what is technical and what is business doing your best as a technical person to to help bridge that gap um, uh, likewise that will be well you know uh, seeking the same from the business side uh, providing that 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 training and technical awareness just helping us all to to grow and learn more better Thanks, Tim. Now we've got a question that says, what's the best way to evaluate the outcome of a model? And I think the only answer I can give is that there is no best way. Um, the, the most appropriate way to evaluate a model is probably to use several techniques at once because some of them may show sort of interesting um, deficiencies of, of the model, but also to consider sort of how the uh, how the model is going to be used. So sometimes it's okay to have false positives um, as long as you don't have any false negatives. Sometimes the sort of overall accuracy is, is critically important. And, and so, so you, you've really got to use a variety of techniques that are suited to the way that the model is going to be used. And I, wouldn't, I don't think I would say there's any one best uh, evaluation method. Just use several. Tim, do you want to add anything there? Um, yeah, I think I think again, uh, just that just that focus around collaboration. Um, potentially, you have you have uh, other road agencies or other other groups connected to the road sector who are developing similar technologies, and it's certainly certainly good to gain from the knowledge of others who have who have worked through similar projects uh, or have already delivered to it to in, in a certain way. Where maybe you want to advance further. Um, just just learning from each other, building and growing. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Uh, we've got a few more questions coming in. Um, so, um, can we suggest protocols for data validation and what percentage of data uh, needs to be validated? So. Tim, do you want do you, do you fancy having a go at the validation protocols part? Or? Um, I think it's it's uh, it is a it is a case of there is a lot of guidance 
uh, available particular to the qualities of data. It's important for us to understand that there are uh, different qualities uh, regarding uh, completeness of records, regarding uh, 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 compliance to particular requirements. And it's important to understand um, understand that 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 sort of area of what is what is a core focus for ensuring data quality for your for your group um, that will help to determine uh, the specific rules that need to be applied. Um, it, it is it is very uh, a very broad subject, one that we still uh, need to need to invest more in the research space in, uh, and certainly will benefit uh, if, if Austroads. Uh, seeks to to, um, to form a more collaborative approach in these areas. Thanks. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll try and deal with the percentage of the validation data part. So I think rather than a, a percentage, I mean, often we might try and hold aside like 10%, say, um, but it, it's not so much a percentage, it's it's understanding the statistics of, of the the sort of subpopulations, the clusters and cliques in in the data. So if you've got, you know, if you, if you've got these clusters, you've got to make sure that all of those all of those clusters of, of, of a certain type of sample are represented in the validation set and in enough numbers that um, that you can get a, a sort of proper statistical assessment of, of whether that works. So it's kind of related to your exploration of your data to make sure that you've, you've actually covered all of the different subpopulations in your validation. Um, and then you've obviously got that tension between um, you know, wanting to have more training data to get a better model, but if you use all your data for training, you've got nothing left for validation. Likewise, if you use it all for validation, then you don't have enough data for training. So there's, there's sort of a trade-off there. So again, it's not really a, a number as such, but sort of exploring the statistics of the data and checking it's all represented. Um, there's um, there's a question here that says, do we have a specific tool we can use to apply AIML? Um, there's so much out there. Um, the good news is that almost everything is open source, um, which means that it's freely available for um, people to download and use it and um, and therefore you, know, you can sort of play with it and, and understand it um, much more than any other field. All of the most popular best tools, uh, particularly machine learning and AI, tends to have a lot of tools available in the Python programming language. Um, so if you have access to people in your team who dabble a bit in Python and maybe dabble a bit in data science or machine learning, they would have access to pretty much everything that the best teams in the world are using, apart from you know the, the, the sort of compute tools may be more limited, but, but the, the methods are all there, including all of the validation tools, the visualization tools, um, the, all of the technical tools are, are there for you to use. And probably I'd recommend Python as an ecosystem, but obviously that's quite a, high level answer as well. Um, Tim, do you, can you think of anything to add to that? I think um, as, as well, just to note that one of our, one of our um, deliverables from our project is actually, uh, is actually the code that we've used directly uh, within the case studies. So uh, it's a case, for, a case for us that we have freely uh, provided this uh, through, uh, through the Austroads website via GitHub. Um, uh, 
the the material is there to help as a foundation for for future development uh, and a case of being able to look at what we've built and therefore you know seek you know, you may you may see that there are potential other use use cases for the scripts or as a foundation for those future use cases um, if it isn't quite aligned um, so it's a case case of here that that we've we've aimed to provide our advice and the scripting to, to provide to provide an, an ease of engagement with these technologies uh, and um, and yeah certainly certainly a case of wanting to advance and improve outcomes uh, for road agencies that are investing in this area. Thanks, Tim. Um, uh, just to try and go through one other question, which is really interesting, which is about um, you know, the, the thing that I talked about in terms of the data leakage and the sort of independence or non-independence of uh, adjacent road sections. So, um, and the commentary is making the point that you know, if sufficiently far apart, then um, yeah, they are independent. And and I think that, that shows you know, how important it is to have the domain knowledge um, in the project team. So you can make that kind of determination. Because if you just have you know, somebody who does data science or machine learning, they don't understand you know, you know, at what scale the sections of road become independent. Whereas if you've got a project team that does include that subject matter expert who can tell you that, then, then you can pick an appropriate sort of distance at which you can say, no, it's okay for the part of this road to be in the training set and part to be in the test set. Or they can say, well, when we are doing the validation, we need to check this independence by measuring sort of how often these treatments are uh, applied concurrently to the same section, something like that. So, so yeah, I think that the question is really great for sort of um, showing the importance of, of, of having the domain experts in the team. Um, uh, I think we're almost out of time. Um, do we have any advice on generating synthetic data and when you recognise you need it? Uh, if I quickly have a go at this, then generally machine learning models benefit from more data. The question is, do you know something about the domain? Again, domain expert, crucially important. If you know something about the domain that allows you to generate realistic synthetic data, then great. So for, for images, there's often all these augmentations for which there's free Python libraries that allow you to flip and transform and, and rotate images to sort of give you more training examples. The danger is that if you create synthetic data that is not like reality, then you will get a false impression of uh, model quality. And I think that's all we've got time for today. Uh, and I'll hand back over to Anthony. Anthony, you're just on mute. Sorry, everyone. Um, what I said was thanks, David and Tim, and thanks everyone for your questions today. We'll respond to those that we didn't have time to get to in writing and send you a copy in the coming days. As you can see on the screen, we have a number of webinar, webinars scheduled throughout the end of February and into March. Of particular interest to you might be the second webinar on the list, Development of Machine Learning and Decision Support Tools for Pavement Asset Management, which will occur at 1pm on Friday the 24th of February. This is the next webinar in the series and will focus on two case studies in the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence to create decision support tools for pavement asset management. For more information and to register, please visit the Austroads website. After we close out today's session, a questionnaire will appear on your screen.
please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. It really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for our future webinars. Once again, today's session is being recorded and we'll send you the link to the recording when it is published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.